If you asked me 10 years ago <clears throat> if I'd be running my own business and working within d and I'd probably laugh at you. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but what happens in life and obviously what's happened to me in life has made a real impact and has actually made me really sit back and think about what it is that, that I want to be able to do and achieve and, and help people with. So um, I'm quite grateful for what's happened. When it comes to your career, there really is no one formula for success. And if someone had asked me 20 years ago what career I would be working in today, I doubt I would have said employer branding, a career that didn't even exist at the time. Some of the best stories I've ever heard didn't follow a plan. They simply embraced the journey. And that's why I've created this podcast, to share the many career stories that have shaped the people behind them, and to encourage future generations to trust more in the process instead of stressing over getting it right the first time. I'm Steve, and welcome to the My Career Story Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the My Career Story Podcast with me, your host, Steve Keith. Now, today's guest is Chris Allen. Chris is a DNI practitioner and champion for true diversity and inclusion. He is wholeheartedly committed to awareness, education, and equal representation. With a lifelong mission to create equal opportunities for all, he's started Your D&I to support businesses to instill authentic diversity and inclusion into their organisation and to provide a platform where everyone is seen, valued and supported on an equal playing field. Okay, so I have Chris with me today. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Not too bad, thank Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are more than welcome. I know you've got lots of interesting stuff to talk about, so we're going to get straight into it. And Chris, what is your career story? Uh, my career story is quite a, an interesting one. We've, I've had a lot of twists and turns throughout my career. Okay. I um, started when I was 15, so 20 years ago now, uh, if I care to admit that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I started um, working for my mum. So she worked for um, a stationery company. Um, and she used to have me in on a Saturday um, mm-hmm. doing her stock control. And she used to pay me um, with um, a chippy. Okay. So it would be sausage and chips every Saturday. Um, is, Sounds is good to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I was quite <laughs> happy, to be fair. I was, I, was, I was a fat teenager, so I, kind of, I, was, I was reveling in it. Um, so, yeah, I was there for, I'd say, about six months or so. Um, just on the run up to my, my 16th birthday and she, yeah, it just get, kind of gave me a, an insight into, into retail and it's something I really fell in love with. I've always been a bit of a people person ever since I was really young um, and on my, my 16th birthday my mum gave me a birthday card and with that was an application form for Matalan, um, which is where she was also working at the time. Um, so uh, it became a bit of a family affair, Matalan. Um, so I got the job, um, had my very, very first day. I remember quite vividly, um, I was working in ladies' underwear. Fabulous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So as a 16 year old boy, it was um, terrifying. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was, it was quite daunting to be asked um, if you had a, a 32 double F. Um, and actually having no idea what that actually meant. Um, needless to say, I didn't last very long in ladies' underwear. Um, and kind of from there, I was um, I kind of, I was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, really. So I did a lot of stock work. Um, I um, worked in menswear um, for a lot of the time, homeware as well, which was kind of one of my more favourite departments to work in. I've always liked to enjoy, I've always enjoyed um making things look nice within the home. So mm-hmm. uh, I was kind of in my element when it came to merchandising. Um, and also back in the day of, of jeans bars in Matalan. So I don't know if anybody who listens remembers Matalan all those years ago, I used to have a jeans bar. Um, I remember. You remember, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it ranged from eight pound jeans, Xantos jeans are kind of ingrained in my memory for the rest of my life. Um, and I became quite obsessed with it. So I was, I've always been obsessed with symmetry. So I wanted to make sure that everything kind of looked nice and everything was regimented. Um, and I was in that department for about six months or so. And we always got really high um, 
recommendations when it came to store visits. So regionals would come in and go, wow, your jeans bar looks incredible and stuff like that. So that was really good for, for my confidence as a young lad. Um, and same with menswear as well. So this was a time where Matalan was, you had to pay a pound to get in for your card. And if you left your card at home, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and if you forgot your card, you still had to pay another pound for another card. Um, and they weren't known for fashion as much as I suppose what they are now. Um, it was very kind of old fashioned, very much had a demographic of, I would say, 40 plus um, for mm -hmm. the customers they were trying to attract. And obviously someone who wanted to buy cheap clothes um, back then, I was kind of like, well, how can we kind of style outfits and attract kind of more of the the younger people when they're walking around the shops begrudgingly with their parents, um, how can we get their attention? So um, again, it was, it was back in the day of bootcut jeans and suit jackets and white shirts when it was super on trend. And I kind of miss bootcut jeans still to this day, I think. Um, I used to um, do a lot of the merchandising for um, kind of the end walls as you were walking around the store and stuff like that. And I kind of really, right. really enjoyed that. And I suppose I've always had a bit of an artistic flair when it comes to to merchandising. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my, my introduction, I suppose. And as time went on, I was there for five years or so. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I um, was asked to do um, some training because I've always been chatty and I was always chatty on the, the customer service desk and kind of at the, the till points with um, the customers coming through. And I was asked if I'd be up for doing some training on the new EPOS system that they were introducing. So they were finally going chip and pen, they were finally going kind of digital right. with the, the till systems. Um, and as part of that, I decided, you know what? Some of the staff need a bit of extra customer service training. So I also devised some customer service training as a 19 year old lad um, at this point. Um, and we rolled out um, customer service training along with EPOS training and absolutely loved it. And it was kind of little things about like how you would give change to a customer to make sure that they're not fussing. And one of my, my biggest bugbears is when you get given the note and then the coins on top, because you're kind of fussing to try and get it in your wallet. So I was always telling people, give the coins first, then give your note. So people have got a process on how to put it into their purses and wallets. Um, so yeah, that kind of went really well. The staff really enjoyed um, that element of the training. Um, and um, we carried on kind of further customer service training um, as part of that. And I got to kind of help do that in a couple of stores, which I was, I was quite grateful for. Um, but what happens when you're 20 and you're still working at Matalan and you meet your, your first boyfriend um, is obviously you fall head over heels and they lived in Glasgow, I lived in Edinburgh. And I was like, I'm going to give it all up and I'm going to move to Glasgow and I'm going to like have the best life. Um, so I left Matalan um, at the ripe old age of 20, um, gave some of the best years of my life, I think, to them. Um, and um, had a job in Sky Customer Services. So it was a outsourcing company. So I didn't work for Sky directly. Um, and it was great. It was kind of three days a week, 12 hour shifts a day. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed it. The, the only thing I, I didn't enjoy, I think, about that role was um, I put on in the region of about nine stone during a year whilst I was working there because there was chip vans outside, there was really good catering, it was cakes every couple of hours coming around on trolleys right. and things like that. And I got into, into a bit of a state, I suppose, it became quite large. Um, I kind of noticed a bit of a problem. So I was like, I'm going to leave this job, I think, and, and kind of try try something else. Uh, and from there, I moved on into Superdrug. Um, and it was a very interesting concept at the time for Superdrug. <clears throat> they um, decided they wanted to jump on the mobile phone bandwagon. And they okay. also decided that they wanted to target females. So they right. launched this new brand called Pink, which looking back now was quite derogatory. <laughs> um, and um, we sold mobile phone contracts in Superdrug, and it was three mobile, because um, they were all part of the same group. Um, 
but Superdrug kind of paid the, the discounts on the, the contracts we were doing and we used to run contracts from 99 pence a month and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was cash back. So we would literally give customers cash back out of the till. So they wouldn't get back through direct debit. We'd literally go to the till and go, there's your 150 quid for this quarter. Um, and um, yeah, it was interesting. It was the first time I'd ever had to kind of market a store or kind of market myself mm-hmm. to drum up a bit of business. And with it being pink, um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to dye my hair pink. So I dyed my hair bright, bright pink. <clears throat> I marched up and down Socky Hall Street in Glasgow. So I don't know if you've ever been. Um, and um, I had pink balloons on. I had a pink tracksuit on. I was also 24 stone at the time as well. So you can imagine kind of the, the sight of this six foot three, 24 stone guy walking up and down the high street. <laughs> Um, covered in pink head to toe. Um, it, it was probably quite a frightful sight, um, but it worked. We became kind of one of the most successful stores in the country um, because people kind of remembered us for what, what it was that we were trying to do. Um, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. it kind of came into a bit of trouble. I think Superdrug realized that actually giving customers cash out the till wasn't very good and it wasn't very profitable for them. So they pulled the plug um, mm-hmm. I think after about nine months or so um, of us being there. Um, so it was made redundant for the first time. Um, and it's a bit of a scary thought when you've just moved to a new city, you're trying to support yourself for the first yeah. time, well away from home. Um, <clears throat> luckily enough, my um, mum, so my mum and a lot of my family feature a lot throughout my career um, because we've all worked in the same places at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> So at one point in Matalan, there was myself, my brother, and one of my sisters all worked in the same store at the same time. Um, so after I left Three or Superdrug, um, the Pier, uh, I don't know if you remember the Pier, the big uh, homeware furniture shop, um, which specialized in kind of um, exotic furniture, I suppose. So kind of everything was sourced locally from China, from India, mm-hmm. um, really kind of ornate pieces. And it was beautiful. I absolutely uh, loved the, the, the stock that we had. And they were opening their biggest store um, in Glasgow. And I was fortunate enough to get an interview there um, and get offered the, the position of furniture specialist. So um, this is where my love of furniture first kind of started to come from. Um, and within the space of about two weeks, kind of trying to get a store ready, we didn't have a lift, we didn't really have stairs, all the stock was getting carried up the fire escape in the back, which I'm sure now looking back is very much against health and safety regs. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I ended up losing about three stone of the, 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 the weight I'd put on quite quickly within two weeks. So that was kind of a big confidence booster for me. Um, and really got into that kind of furniture sales lifestyle um and we we became quite popular they were popular as a company anyway but we seemed to be getting bigger um with the product that we had um again i was able to kind of put my creative flair to test and i was able to do room sets and and things like that and um sell like i just i i love the whole the whole sales process within retail the the customer journey they would come in and they would show you a picture of their living room and you'd be like okay okay we have this dining set here and this cabinet that would feature really nicely within the room as well so um yeah i absolutely loved it uh, an opportunity came up to run my own store um so for the first time could become a store manager and um took the opportunity so moved to livingston which is where my, my mom and dad um live and um yeah, learned a lot quite quickly. So I was 24, I think, when I first ran my, my first store um, and realized quite quickly how much of a responsibility it was. You were in charge of people. You were responsible for staff. Um, yeah. You were responsible for the finances within the business. You were responsible for stock control. So had to grow up quite quickly because being kind of a sales assistant or kind of a sales supervisor, you can still be a bit of a jack the lad and you can still kind of have that. Yeah a bit of fun with staff it was I learned quite quickly to have that separation between myself and the team um, you can't be seen to always be having a laugh they need to kind of uh, respect you and take yourself seriously but you also need to earn, earn that respect as well um, <clears throat> so I came into the store and I remember my very first day I was taken over from another manager uh, <laughs> 
I, I walked in and I was like, there's no one on the shop floor. And we were at a concession within a home base. And I was like, where is everybody? And it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I was kind of looking around all the nooks and crannies just to see if anyone was replenishing or anything like that. And there was nobody there. So I knocked on the office door and I heard a come in. So I, I came into to the office and the store manager was performing Reiki on her supervisor. And I was like, what's happening just now? What's going on? Like, why is no one on the shop floor? What, why? Like, what, what's going on? Um, and she was like, oh, yeah, we're, we're quite quiet. So we like to do this during our, during our, our downtimes. And I was like, okay, this isn't happening. This can't happen. I need to learn as much from you as possible over the next couple of weeks before you leave about the stock you have in store and whatnot as well. The store wasn't very profitable. Um, and I think at one point was under the risk of closing because sales were so low. Um, and we would do a floor walk around the store and she would say things like, oh yeah, we don't really sell many dining tables because we're in home base. And I was like, well, you're stocking dining tables at the same as home base. So of course you're not going to sell anything when they're undercutting you by about 25%. So I was like, have you thought about bringing in more of the ornate pieces that really catch people's eyes? Um, no, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, that's fine. So needless to say, as soon as she left, I was on the phone to the warehouse ordering all this or ornate yeah, stock yeah. Um, and try trying to get it in. Um, and within the first three months of running the store, our sales increased by 75%. Amazing. So, which was huge. And we used to have queues around the store. Christmas was incredible. Um, and it was just a real buzz. Mm -hmm. um, I'd inherited a, a, a decent team, um, some of which were very, very young and they were hired because they were attractive. Um, and she'd been very open about that as well, which obviously isn't the best thing to do. Um, <clears throat> I had one chap who had called in sick one Saturday because he told me that his mum had fallen down the stairs and broke her arm. And I was obviously quite concerned and I was like, oh, yeah. go be with your mum, make sure she's okay, all this kind of thing. The next day he called back and he said, oh, my mum's condition's got worse, her arm's turned gangrene and they're going to have to amputate. And I was like, God, this is terrible. This is a, an awful thing to happen. Um, and I was like, just take the time, come back in next week, we'll have a chat and we'll, we'll work something out. So needless to say, he came back in the following Saturday for his shift and about two o'clock during the shift, his mum walked into the store um, with two arms and uh, was like, oh, you've, you've recovered quite well. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, he, he said that you had your arm amputated last week because um, oh, no. you'd fallen down the stairs. And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So obviously I had to like, in the office, had to have a conversation with them and, and put them through disciplinary because, because of that. And it's one of the, my most fondest memories, I think, of, of being a manager <laughs> that, um, that, that that happened. So I think that's the funniest story I've had yet. That's a good one. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he was, um, he was an interesting character. Needless to say, it never happened again, which was, yeah. which was good. <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, with 2008-2009, uh, when the crash happened, mm. um, the peer, they were invested in buying an Icelandic company. And obviously, right. Icelandic banks were the first to go. So we lost everything um, and were put into administration after 25 years of trading. Um, mm -hmm. And again, found myself redundant. Um, and from there, I kind of, I think I had about three or four months of, of job hunting as everybody was at the time, it was a, a really difficult time, yeah. um, but managed to land myself an interview um, for an O2 franchise in Edinburgh and went for the interview. And luckily enough, during the interview, the, the franchisee turned around to me and was like, you know, you sold me a dining table last year. And I was like, oh, did I? And he said, yeah, he said, your salesmanship was incredible. And he said, I don't really have to interview you because I know what your sales pitch is like. So right. yeah, so we'd like to hire you as a, an assistant manager um, with the, the chance of becoming store manager, um, which was great. We had a really good position in a place called Morningside in Edinburgh, which is quite um, well to do, um, <clears throat> very student populated as well. So we did really well kind of during term time for, for broadband sales. 
my team was predominantly students as well. So it was my first time exposed to working with students and they get a, a lot of hard rap for, for being quite lazy, but actually they were some of the hardest working people I had ever working for me. So mm-hmm. um, they're really good because they, they wanted to make money. They wanted to kind of be able to fund the lifestyle that they had at the weekend and whatnot. So um, really interesting job. Um, we had two stores. We had one in Edinburgh, one in Glasgow. <clears throat> and the store manager in Glasgow decided to leave. So I was asked to run both stores, um, mm. which is quite a difficult feat because Edinburgh and Glasgow and someone who doesn't drive, they're not close to each other. Um, exactly, yeah. <clears throat> so it was, it was difficult, to say the least. Um, but we managed it. And again, the Glasgow store was, was very successful because of its positioning. Again, he was, the franchisee was quite careful with the positioning of the stores because we were very much in student city within mm-hmm. uh, both cities. So um, we did quite well. However, the commission scheme used to change as often as you would change your underwear. Um, and there was no consistency. So... Uh, for myself, it's quite demotivating, but also having to motivate your team and have to tell your team that every week your your uh, commission's changing, so you're probably not going to hit commission this month, um, mm. is a bit soul-destroying. Um, so after about a year and a half of being there, I moved into a menswear brand. Um, it's a menswear brand that no longer exists, um, and I'm not going to name the menswear brand because of the story I'm just about to tell you. Um, so was hired under the um, I had a a good presence on the shop floor Um, again like I'm a big lad um, and sometimes with these menswear stores it was I don't want to use the word chavvy but it was kind of that kind of um, style that they were they were going for at yeah. the time. There was a lot of techno music and stuff like that. Not really my cup of tea, but I thought there could be progression within the, this organisation. And um, started with them um, for I think I was there for two months, and I was the store manager. I had a conversation with my assistant manager, and she said, "What are you doing this weekend?" And I said, um, "I'm going away with my partner." Mm-hmm. And she said, "Oh, great! What does she do?" And I was like, "Well, actually, it's a he." And she was like, oh, right, okay, that's cool. Like, what does he do? And I thought nothing of it. We had a conversation and kind of left for, <clears throat> for the weekend and came back on the, the following Monday with my regional manager in, in the office. And he's like, oh, can we have a, a conversation through the back? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I went through to the back of the store and he said, it's been brought to my attention that you're not the person we thought we were getting when we hired you. And uh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, based on the lifestyle that you lead outside the store, um, it's not the type of uh, lifestyle that we try and promote as a brand um, to our customers. And I was like, I still don't really get what you're talking about. And he said, we well, had a conversation with such and such um, about going out with your boyfriend. You didn't let us know that you were gay. And I was like, well, I didn't really see that as being a problem. Like, I'm good at my job. I'm profitable, like I can make the business a lot of money. So what does that have to do with anything? Because the reputation this brand had at the time, um, we used to have to ask our female members of staff to walk around in men's boxer shorts and white vests. And they were wearing high heels because one of the KPIs was boxer shorts. Um, <clears throat> again, not my cup of tea. And again, not my, my the, the type of thing I wanted to try and promote. But when you're trying to impress a new business when you walk into it, you kind of just go along with it. Mm. Um, so this conversation kind of progressed with the, the regional manager and he said, because you don't represent the brand that we have, um, we're going to ask you to leave. Um, and I got escorted off the premises that day um, without saying goodbye wow. to the staff or anything, um, just because of my, my sexuality. And it didn't really sink in for a while um, because I, I, th- I was in a state of shock. And um, yeah, and a few weeks later, I, I kind of had a, a conversation with um, the HR team and we kind of had some sort of resolution, but this was before um, 2010. So um, I didn't really have a leg to stand on um, when it came to the Equal Opportunities Act. So um, I kind of took it as that and decided to move on, had a kind of a few bitty jobs, I suppose, throughout that time and was made redundant another couple of times after that. So, um, 
decided I, I need a bit of a, a career change and I kind of need to do something that's a little bit different. So I went and sold loft insulation um, okay. and cavity wall insulation <laughs> um, through telesales. And I absolutely loved it. And it was a, a really good job. It was a small family run business. They treated us phenomenally well. Um, they were doing really well throughout the scheme. So um, it was one of these ones, the government would give them money and we could do the insulation for free, um, mm -hmm. which is harder than it sounds, trying to convince something they're gonna, someone they're gonna get something for free. <clears throat> so I um, did that for a while, met someone else um, and they were living in London at the time. And I thought this is an opportunity I can take to, to move to London, um, uh, moved to London I was still able to do the job, so I was working from home, um, which was quite a nice um, thing that they gave me the opportunity to do that. But I was kind of missing retail a little bit. So I um, joined a company called Muji um, in London, yeah. um, a Japanese retailer, and we uh, I was store manager for um, High Street Kensington and King's Road. Okay. Um, so quite nice, quite a nice area yeah. to be in. Um, I've been in those stuff. Yeah, um, you get to meet a lot of characters um, in, in these types of environments. We had some really high profile customers. So we had Tom mm. Hanks, we had JK Rowling, we've had Rob Kardashian, Kylie Minogue, Naomi Campbell. Um, so some incredible people walked through Kylie. the door. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't recognize, did recognize Kylie to start with because she was quite small and she wasn't wearing a bit of makeup as well. So yeah. I was quite surprised. I think she was trying to stay inconspicuous, but it wasn't until one of my staff members went, Kylie Minogue's in store. <laughs> so obviously everyone started swarming around her. Um, but for me, the nicest customer I had was Naomi Campbell. And I know, again, she gets a really bad reputation when she... Yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. ...in restaurants and whatnot. And she was lovely. She was very accommodating. She answered questions from the staff. Um, it was more footballers that we had an issue with. Um, they demanded yeah. that the store was closed so they could come in shopping. Um, oh, my God. Things like that. And I was like, if I'm not going to close the store for Naomi Campbell, I'm not going to close the store for you. So <laughs> it's not going to happen. I had no idea who they were because I don't really follow football. So... There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I was there for a couple of years. Um, absolutely loved it. It was a, a great environment. The again, great product had a really great team, and it kind of helped me understand people from different cultures and backgrounds as well because of the the type of staff that I had. So at that time, I had a lot of Spanish staff. Um, right. That was a stage in, in London where we we had a lot of Spanish people come over. Um, I had Italian, Indian, Muslim, and again, it kind of made me understand different people's thinking and different people's beliefs and things like that and it really kind of helped educate me. Um, the person I was with at the time wanted out of London, had been there for, for a while and because I was green at that time I was like yeah let's do it, let's move out of London, I'd only been there for a couple of years um, and we moved to Nottingham which is where he was from <clears throat> and um, I got a job selling solar panels in Ikea. So when I said there was twists and turns in my career, I, there's a lot of twists and turns within my yeah. career. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was a big company. It's one of the world's largest solar companies, a company called Hanergy. And um, we were selling new technology of solar, um, which is why IKEA wanted us in there to, to invest. Mm. We, we provided panels for IKEA stores across the world. Um, and it was one of the most difficult sales gigs I had. Because sometimes you were trying to stop customers and convince customers who were coming in to buy tea lights to buy a seven and a half thousand pound solar system. Um, <clears throat> so there was a lot of upselling going on there. Um, again, I had quite a strong team. Um, I was quite fortunate to, to kind of hire really good salespeople within the organization. We became one of the top performing stores within the country. Um, I did make one of my biggest recruitment mistakes I suppose and it was through really no fault of mine and no fault of the the person that I recruited um but it was a chap who was from Hungary and he interviewed phenomenally well he kind of gave the right answers he gave really good examples um and I was like this guy's going to be fantastic <clears throat> I think people really warmed him because he was just a lovely man as well and he turned up on his first day and couldn't speak a word of English so he'd 
learned how to get through a sales interview and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, but actually when it came down to it and giving him a script as well, he really, really struggled. Um, and I felt so guilty that um, he wasn't able to do it. And I really tried to coach him as much as I could and tried to kind of get it out of him and help teach him English. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just wasn't to be. And it was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever had to do was let him go. Um, because he just couldn't perform and he'd come over here to be with his girlfriend and things like that. And I was just tried so hard, but it just wasn't to be. Um, which was probably quite fortunate for him because two months later we went into administration. So, <laughs> um, and the UK side of the business kind of folded and we came out of IKEA um, and was made redundant again. So, four or five times I've been made redundant throughout my career. I was getting really fed up. And I thought, I just need to come out of retail and sales for a little bit and kind of see, see where I'm at. And joined a recruitment agency in Nottingham uh, for six months. And I absolutely hated it. It just, it wasn't me. The owner was quite flaky, I suppose. Mm. Um, so a lot of my job was scheduling appointments for him. Right. And he was to go and do some of the sales pitches um, at the appointments. And every time I schedule an appointment, he says in the morning of the appointment, oh, can you reschedule it till tomorrow? I'm not going to have time today. And this happened all the time. And it was for some big name clients. And I was just getting getting really fed up. And I kind of came to the stage where I was like, I really need to reevaluate what it is that I want to do. Mm. So I quit without a job to go to. Um, and I was talking to a friend who used to work for the agency and she just joined Nottingham Trent University. And she said, we've got a couple of positions that have come up. Um, what do you think? And I was like, yeah, it sounds quite interesting. Initially, it was a maternity contract and um, applied and got the job. And I was a a business advisor for computing students. Um, And so what that kind of really means was employed engagement. So I was to um, liaise with employers about the graduate roles, placement roles within the career service um, and advertise them to to students and also to get employers on campus to um, kind of support what it was was that they were offering and within that role we kind of really pushed the the boundaries so myself and my my colleague um girl called sam she looked after the science side and we started to notice that there was a bit of an issue around female students um so we had a good number of female students on these courses but with stem obviously there's an issue when it comes to representation when it comes to um graduate careers and careers in general so we start putting on a number of events where we tried to target more female students and more employers who were interested in um, trying to attract more females into the business, which is now everyone, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that job kind of really started to, to develop and we started running more events and kind of really getting quite well known for, for what we were doing on our campus. Um, and a job came up um, still within the careers team, um, which was employer engagement for widening participation. Um, if you don't know what widening participation is, students from low socioeconomic groups, low family income backgrounds, we also included students who were, um, had a disability mm-hmm. um, as part of that. And my job was to try and get employers to recruit students from these backgrounds, which was a really difficult thing because employers didn't really know what widening participation was at that point. I think a lot still don't. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so kind of had to change the job a little bit. So it became employed engagement for diversity and inclusion, which was our, our way in to, to the organizations because everybody was talking about DNI and kind of what they're doing mm-hmm. around DNI. And through intersectionality, a lot of students would have fallen into either LGBT, um, black or minority ethnic. Um, so we'd say to run a number of events, try and educate the, these employers. So I had a really excess, successful event called Thinklusive. <clears throat> where we had about 60 employers, major employers come into the university where we would educate them on what WP meant um, and also what they were doing around diversity and inclusion, what they weren't doing around diversity and inclusion, how we could help impact their business. And for me, that was kind of a defining moment within my career. I was running workshops and one of the workshops, uh, a company had a major light bulb moment and they were trying to recruit more people with disabilities. Um, and they said, we stopped paying for um, travel to our interviews and we would only pay for public transport. 
um, for people to come to our interviews. And I said, well, if someone has a disability, they might not be able to use public transport. They may need to have a car or they may need to have a taxi to, to get there. And they were like, oh, oh, what? Oh, I didn't really realize that. So that's why we're not getting as many people with disabilities applying for the job. And within that instant, they went back to their office and two months later, they changed their policy. Mm which was kind of a major thing for, for us to kind of help push that along and kind of help that, that change. And I know changed a number of their policies when it comes to DNI, which is quite powerful. Um, <clears throat> absolutely loved the job at Nottingham Trent. Um, however, went through a bit of trauma in August last year uh, where my mum suffered a massive stroke um, and impacted me quite badly um, in a way that I didn't think it would have. And was really struggling to focus on anything um, at all because my mum had always been so active. She'd been ill for a while, um, mm -hmm. but she'd always been quite active. And for that to happen and seeing her in that state in the hospital kind of really affects you. Yeah. So I got signed off, and it's the first time I've ever been signed off with anything. Um, was signed off with stress. Just found the whole situation really difficult to to, to get my head around. Um. And during that time, did a bit of soul searching um, around what I actually wanted to do. And DNI was a huge, huge part of that. Um, so when I came back to the uni, um, I was approached by um, Inclusive Recruiting um, and landed a, a position with them. And I thought this is something I can focus all my attention into and really kind of do something with. Started with them in January was really grateful for the opportunity um, and had kind of really fantastic conversations with businesses and we were just starting to get somewhere um, with these conversations about booking appointments and booking workshops and things like that. And then at the end of March, not only did COVID hit, but also my mum passed away, um, which just kind of shakes your whole being and, and kind of brings your whole world crashing down, especially in the, the situation that we're in. Yeah. Um, so during that time I kind of came to a conclusion that I kind of wanted to do more and really wanted to push myself and the stuff we were doing with Inclusive was fantastic um, but I wanted to do more around social mobility um, and really kind of help educate people on smaller bite-sized chunks of diversity and inclusion because sometimes we hit people so hard with DNI, and it can be really overwhelming um, so I wanted to be able to do something to help educate people around language um, and around certain uh, parts of intersectionality within um, the, the, the sphere of DNI. So during the time, I was kind of come up with some ideas for workshops, came back from flexible, uh, on flexible furlough with IR and just kind of had a realization that that's, that's what I wanted to do. So decided to leave uh, inclusive recruiting and form your DNI. Um, which is my new business, which is just about mm -hmm. to launch quite shortly. Yeah. Um, and we, we really want to be a socially responsible business. <clears throat> so a lot of what we're doing is we run a number of workshops. So for instance, our main workshop is it's all about the banter and it's all about language, protected characteristics within the workplace and really educating people on when banter goes too far, what friendly banter is. Um, also looking at things like empathetic listening and the importance of that because um, that really affects people's language and how they feel um, at work as well. Um, and really excited about people being able to see this workshop. We've trialed it a few times um, and we've had some really fantastic feedback. So I'm really excited yeah. about getting that out there. And um, we also have the A to T of LGBT. So we're going to be talking about the LGBT alphabet and actually really breaking that down for people because... I mean, you'll know some of the conversations you've probably had with people is not everybody's comfortable with the word queer. Um, mm -hmm. Not everybody knows what non-binary is. So we want to be able to equip recruiters and HR professionals with a guide about what all this means. And if someone comes to you and says, identify as queer, how do you actually approach that? And how can you have a conversation with that person about what that actually means without going, oh God, queer means strange. Whereas actually mm -hmm. for this person, it's about how they identify within the community. And within the world, not just the, the community. Um, <clears throat> we're also looking at social mobility. So we will be doing a training um, session on, on social mobility as well and educating people around that, the pledge, the importance of it, looking at how to attract people from underrepresented groups as well as part of your recruitment process. 
Um, we will be doing diverse recruitment as well. So looking at recruitment and onboarding processes uh, and the bigger picture, which is a deep dive into unconscious bias. Um, we didn't want to call it unconscious bias because I think everyone's fed up of unconscious bias and, and kind of how it's now become a bit of an HR exercise in every business. So we really want to try and break it down more and kind of dig deeper into it and actually make people realize what their biases are um, and how to overcome it. Um, and that's kind of our, our phase one of the business. Um, phase two will be the on-demand model that we'll be launching as well, uh, where people can do bite-sized chunks of our workshops at their leisure whenever they want, mm -hmm. um, and they'll get a certificate as well um, at the end of that to, to say they've completed um, certain modules. And in phase three, something I'm really excited about is our uh, jobs board. So the jobs board is targeted initially at students from underrepresented groups, specifically low socioeconomic groups. And it's really a tool for universities to use because what we want to do is attract businesses who have signed the social mobility pledge or are committed completely to diversity and inclusion, advertise their roles with us and we will give them access to this talent. Because universities at the minute are really struggling with language about how to go to the WP students and say this business wants to look at you without it being positive discrimination. So yeah, we, yeah, so we want to be that middle person, I suppose, and kind of the university can say, <clears throat> if you're interested in applying for, I don't know, PwC, if we, if we get them on board, then go to this website, apply through the website. The beauty of it is the fees that the employers will pay, 10% of that will go to charity. So we've partnered with um, Making the Leap, which is a social mobility charity in London who've started the Social Mobility Awards. Um, and we're also looking to partner with a local Nottingham charity as well called the Wolfpack. Um, so as part of our responsibility, we want to be able to give back. I'm having conversations at the minute as well with other businesses about what more we can do to make more of an impact, especially mm -hmm. for students during this time who might not have access to laptops. And iPads. So what can we do to try and kind of help equip these students with that, that type of technology? Um, and some of our workshops as well, we'll also be donating to, to certain charities as well. So we're doing a privilege workshop and as part of that we are looking for a charity that supports people of colour uh, and um, we want to be able to kind of impact that business as well. So we want to try and kind of encompass everything whilst giving back to um, the community really um, yeah. and that's where we're at so hopefully launching within next week yeah you're a busy man Chris. I am I am also <laughs> running my own my own podcast as well uh, called Diversity <laughs> uh, so that's a little plug <clears throat> um, and we're, we're relaunching that as part of National Inclusion Week this year as well so we've had a few episodes um, but we're tackling kind of more harder topics um, mm -hmm. in the relaunch so we're, we're looking at the the problem with BAME um, yeah. and the, the language around that <clears throat> uh, we're also looking at trans awareness um, we are doing an episode on widening participation which will be focused at the, the HE sector as well so mm. um, yeah it's all, there's a lot going on um, but it's all very exciting yeah, it is it's, it's, it's really interesting that the work that you're going to be doing there but your career story as well is just is really fascinating you, yeah. you seem to have learned a lot about yourself in the process just listening to you talking about it there definitely if you asked me 10 years ago <clears throat> if i'd be running my own business and working within dni i'd probably laugh at you mm. um <clears throat> but what happens in life and obviously what's happened to me in life has made a real impact and has actually made me really sit back and think about what it is that that i want to be able to do and achieve and, and help people with so um, i'm quite grateful for what's happened how do you like one question one theme that's coming through there that's happened to you a number of times was the redundancy piece yeah now if you think about the current climate and what's possibly already happening to people or what i see coming in the next couple of months once some people start rolling off furlough and businesses really start to yeah feel the hit from covid how did because i've been through redundancy as well how did you cope with it or what mechanisms have you put in or built because you've had it multiple times yeah, the first time it happened, I probably had a bit of a breakdown, <laughs> um, which I think it, it, it's natural. It's not a nice thing to happen. Um, I took time, and I think sometimes we're so quick to 
rush out and get another job, which obviously we need to make money. That that's yeah, that's really important. But I think make a bit of time for yourself and evaluate what it is that you actually want to do. Um, be active on LinkedIn. That that for me has been key throughout any time I've been made redundant. Uh, apart from the first time, because I don't think LinkedIn existed way, way, way back then. So, um, but yeah, link, LinkedIn for me, the, the network that I have and the people that I've been able to rely on and helping me find another role or even launching this business um, has been phenomenal. And I'm so grateful for the connections that I have. Um, <clears throat> and just, I was constantly keeping my CV up to date. So if I'd learned something new, I would add it to my CV. Um, I would change my cover letter for every single job. And working in the career service at university, you see quite a lot that sometimes candidates will just send out as many copies as they can um, yeah. out, of, out of desperation, which <clears throat> is fine. But then if you're doing that and you're not getting any re results, then you need to kind of step back and say, what am I doing wrong? So I would have about five or six different cover letters. I would have about three or four different variations on my CV as well, highlighting different skills for different jobs for different sectors. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just keeping yourself in the loop, um, following what other businesses are doing, having a look at industry trends um, as much as possible and just being as active as possible on social media. I mean, that's how we ended up getting in contact with each other is because of what we've both been doing on, on LinkedIn. So yeah. um, <laughs> I think that's really important is just to keep yourself relevant and keep yourself active because someone will notice you. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's that it's it's showing an interest as well. The reason I reached out to you is that you were doing a lot of things that were similar, but they were interesting. Yeah. And I was kind of like, right, okay, well, regardless of whether or not this it turns into anything from a business perspective, there's a connection to be made there. And one of the great things about LinkedIn is that you've got a network there of, of like-minded people. Absolutely. And when we're looking at the the diversity and inclusion debate and everything I will always kind of go for a quite hard around a diversity of thought piece as well that people sometimes miss yeah um and if you want to be particularly for DNI, I see it quite a lot at the moment all the job roles that are up there for, for DNI leads and everything are expecting you to have five ten years of experience yeah. I mean I will argue a little bit that if there were people that had five or ten years experience doing it then we wouldn't have problems that we have yeah. Um, or there'd be at least be some solutions out there to them yeah exactly uh, but um you to to once you get to that kind of kind of proficiency in something and you've had the experience i think it's um matthew saeed who talks about the ten thousand hours that you will accumulate yeah. which makes you an expert yeah or a specialist as i prefer to use um that that you, you you become known for certain things but to do that you have to have conversations with people exactly. and there's far too much that goes on in the dni space as well at times which is people just having conversations of their own um absolutely uh, yeah and not seeing the benefit of actually going why don't we all just do this together i've been on so many um particularly around social mobility in the past actually committees where employers have come together with the best of intentions to solve a problem yeah and use that two hours to talk around the solutions that they could potentially come up with and, and roll out and then gone back into ivory towers and nothing happens <laughs> nothing ever happened. And yeah. comes and goes, did anybody have time to do that no you know, should we put that back on the agenda and you just go around in circles you're like yeah. a little hamster going around a wheel it just gets ridiculous it is fun i was having a conversation with someone last week um, about this and the, the DNI sector, we don't seem to work together to, to kind of, we're all working towards the, the end goal at the end of the day, which is to promote diversity and inclusion. So what we're trying to do as part of our business <clears throat> is we're creating a Friends of Ours page and we want to be able to promote other DNI businesses and other businesses who have a strong belief around DNI and social mobility and highlight what it is that they do. Um, if it affects our business, it's not going to affect our business massively because what could potentially come of that is we have an organization that comes to us and says, we want to run tra training sessions on X, Y, and Z. We've then got a community of people that we can say, okay, I mean, I'm not a specialist in female in leadership um, because of lived experience. Whereas actually there's an organization called Yes, You Can um, who are a fantastic advocate for that. So we could bring them in. We could bring in a trans ambassador, for Katie Neves, for instance, and bring them mm -hmm. into the conversation. And 
actually build a collective of people that we could then go to an organization with proposal and say, actually, as a unit, we're all going to be able to deliver this for your business. Um, whereas at the moment, you do sometimes see some businesses that have a specialist niche in an area that try and encompass everything, but actually not really knowing everything about every aspect of DNI. Because I don't claim to know. I'm educated about trans, but again, because of that lived experience, I don't have. And it's the same with, with gender as well. I've lived experience as a, a white privileged male. However, I can't possibly comment on, on female gender issues. So, um, I mean, I can comment, but not actually give advice um, because of my own lived experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gosh, well, I suspect that you and I could talk for hours and we probably I think we probably could, this. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I will... Um, use this time now to ask you the question that I ask every guest to wrap up the interview and say what would be the advice that you would give um, about careers um, or what people could learn from your own journey to those that are listening find something you love um, I think it sounds a bit corny but finding that that one true passion and if you've got an interest in uh, whether it be DNI or or HR use the time that you have to yourself at home and become educated about it. It's exactly what, what I did. Um, I'm now qualified. I've now done my qualification in diversity and inclusion, but before that I got to where I was because of what I learned and because of the time I used um, in teaching myself about um, all aspects of DNI. So, and keep yourself relevant, just keep educating, keep reading, listen to audiobooks. If you don't like books, go onto YouTube. There's a plethora of information on YouTube. Um, some fantastic TED Talks out there as well um, that uh, will really help you on, on your journey, re regardless of what that route might be. So, um, yeah, education is key. So, thank you again so much for your time today, Chris. It's been really thank great speaking much. to you. Um, I will pop a link in the show notes to um, the website and through to the podcast as well so that people can go and check Excellent. out um, what thank you're doing. Thank you um, very much. Thank you. And thank you to you for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed the episode, then please do leave a review and also don't forget to subscribe and we'll be back next week with another guest. Thanks and bye for now.